Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 60 for August 13, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. At a recent forum in Washington, D.C., three Iranian activists detailed Tehran's systematic disinformation campaign against religious minorities and offered ideas for how tech companies and Western governments can counter the Iranian regime's slander and incitement. Religious minorities have been a target of disinformation and hate speech through both social and traditional media. And a part of me secretly believed that maybe my parents are infidels. And, um, and at school, I, would, I had learned Quranic verses because that's what we were learning. And um, at nights, I would secretly pray for them so that they don't go to hell. I would never tell them that because I didn't want to break their hearts. I think when we think about this information and the impact of it, I think we really should think about children. That was Azadeh Purzand and Simin Kargar, who were joined by Hamid Garagujlu at the Institute's office in Washington, D.C. on July 15 for a conversation on Iran's disinformation campaign against religious minorities. We'll hear their presentations after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. First to speak was Hamid Garagujlu. He's a representative of the International Organization to Preserve Human Rights. We all know that the regime in Iran rejects and doesn't allow any ideology or school of thought that uh, seems to be a threat to its existence. And that's why over the past 40 years, they have so viciously and forcefully oppressed every group, every group in Iran. And the question is, uh, is not whether you're Muslim or Shia, as it's evident by the plight of Sunnis in Iran, Qanabadi Sufis who are uh, Shia Muslims uh, in Iran. Uh, the question is uh, the threat to their base, to their uh, support among the population, and specifically Basijis and uh, uh, Sepahis. And that's why the theoreticians of the regime uh, early on, uh, like Mr. Saeed Amami, uh, pronounced that Qonabadi Sufis are the only real existential threat to the regime uh, because their ideology, their worldview, their practice of Islam um, threatens uh, what the regime preaches as Islam, as Shia Islam. He was worried about uh, the defection among Basijis and Sepahis, uh, the general public uh, having questions about uh, the differences between what Qonobadis practice as Shia Islam and what the regime preaches as Shia Islam. And they uh, early on decided to eradicate Qonobadis Sufis from, uh, from Iran completely. Uh, in the early days of the revolution, they burned down their place of worship in Tehran, and uh, it continues today. And they used three instruments uh, to achieve this goal. Um, one is the use of Basij to instigate extreme violence against uh, Gonabadi Sufis. Uh, they're uh, trained by Mehdi Taib and his Ammariyun institution, which is a terrorist organization indoctrinating and brainwashing uh, uh, young Basijis, turning them into zombies capable of extreme violence, uh, basically automatons uh, that follow orders uh, and apply extreme pressure and uh, violence against anybody. Uh, then the other instrument of the regime has been the corrupt 
judiciary system, uh, which has consistently over the past 40 years uh, issued uh, judgments against Sufis and every other group, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, and the third, uh, under uh, the guidance and leadership of uh, Hossein Ataib, uh, who uh, runs a secret parallel government, uh, the information service of uh, the Revolutionary Guards. And within that institution, uh, there is or the Institute to Study Religions and Religious Groups um, with vast resources. Um, they have presence in every level of social media from print to radio, TV, um, to social media platforms such as internet websites, uh, Telegram, Instagram, uh, uh, Twitter, you name it. Um, and there are many layers to this propaganda machine. Uh, uh, the first group or the first layer is in charge of uh, outright uh, attacks uh, on Gonabadi Sufis. And they use decrees by ayatollahs or marajay taqlid against Gonabadi Sufis. For example, uh, a, a seemingly ordinary citizen poses questions to these ayatollahs uh, asking about Gonabadi Sufis, whether they're legitimate, whether they're Muslims, whether they're Shia whether dealing with them, associating with them, or marrying a Gunabadi Sufi is, is allowed. And of course, you can imagine the responses from these ayatollahs. And that becomes a basis and foundation uh, for their attacks and smear campaigns against uh, Gunabadi Sufis. And the cons consistent theme has been that we are an invention of the West, agents of the West and foreign powers uh, to overthrow the regime, colluding with Baha'is, converts to Christianity, um, you name it. Um, then the second layer poses as independent, uh, unbiased, objective observers. So they approve uh, some aspects of Gonabadi Sufis and they criticize the, the rest. And their uh, motive and uh, objective is to create doubts and uh, uh, fraction within the general public about Gonabadi Sufis. A third group poses as sympathizers of Gonabadi Sufis, reinforcing the objectives of the second group. Uh, so they acknowledge that Sufis are Shia Muslims, they're citizens of the country, they, sh they should have their rights, but at the same time they criticize Gunabadi Sufis uh, on many aspects, uh, which is in line with the uh, objectives of the regime. Um, and uh, they also have people posing as Gunabadi Sufis, uh, supporting seemingly uh, the objectives of Gunabadi Sufis. But um, they only advance the objectives of the regime and their agents that have infiltrated the Gonabadi Sufi community um, and promoting them uh, among the Sufis, um, creating rifts and divisions and conflict uh, within the Sufi community. And finally, they have a, a team dedicated to discrediting Dr. Uh, Sayyid Mustafa Azmayesh, who uh, started the international organization to preserve human rights and the organization itself. Uh, they constantly criticize our activities. Uh, they regularly accuse us of being agents of the Western powers, foreign powers, uh, colluding with, uh, again, world Zionism, uh, Jews, Baha'is, uh, basically the same thing. And uh, these efforts, massive, costly efforts, uh, ironically, have been working against the regime. 
they have had an opposite effect. The more they oppress Qanabadi Sufis, the more the general public, uh, both inside and outside of Iran, because of the work that we do, becomes aware of their plight, because, uh, aware of their ideology and their uh, worldview, practice of Islam. And they contrast that with what the regime preaches and ultimately side with uh, uh, Qanabadi Sufis and condemn the atrocities levied against them. And that's why over the past few years, they have this, this propaganda machine has turned in its attention uh, targeting Basijis and uh, uh, Sepahis to prevent further erosion and defection among them. Uh, over the past 40 years, hundreds of thousands of them have had issues uh, with their superiors. They have parted ways with Sepah and Basij. Many of them, many, many of them have joined Gunabadi Sufis. And that's a cause for concern. Uh, basically, uh, Saeed Amami's prediction has come true. Then, uh, about two years ago, they uh, planned uh, a vicious, vicious uh, plot against Sufis to brand them as uh, terrorist groups, uh, violent, uh, akin to ISIS and uh, Daesh. Um, they ran, uh, they uh, surrounded Dr. Nur Ali and the spiritual leader uh, of the Gonabadi Sufis, surrounded his house with uh, security agents and threatened to arrest him. And uh, of course, Sufis congregated around his house to prevent uh, such a thing. And then a Basiji by the name of Haddadian ran a bus through the security forces, sacrificing their own agents, killing five uh, uh, policemen and Basijis. Uh, and they tried to frame and uh, pin this on Gonabadi Sufis, uh, Sufi by the name of Muhammad Yawar Salos, who was tried and hanged uh, for this accusation. Um, uh, and again, uh, uh, it created an uproar at international level, State Department, European uh, Commission, everybody condemned these actions. And it was proven that Mr. Salos was not the driver of the, uh, the bus. Uh, there are clips and films of uh, the event by the local people that shows the driver is a young person with uh, black curly hair, full beard, and Mr. Yavar Salos didn't have a beard, and he had a balding head, and he was an older gentleman. And at the time, he was lying half dead in an interrogation office somewhere else in Tehran. So this was, this was a very costly mistake for them. Then they changed their strategy. Uh, since then, they have held Dr. Nur Adyatov under house arrest. Basically, he's a prisoner in his home. Uh, every aspect of his life uh, controlled by uh, the agents of the regime. He cannot have communication with Sufis without their permission or Sufis' access to him. Uh, they have withheld medical care from Dr. Tavande, who's 92 years old. We have evidence that he has been repeatedly drugged and poisoned with the ultimate goal of replacing him with one of their agents. And again, this propaganda machine has played a pivotal role uh, by fabricating statements and documents in the name of Dr. Tavande, assigning one of their agents, the regime's agents, as his successor. Uh, uh, denying the fact that he's been uh, under house arrest and a prisoner in his home. Um, and again, uh, through the uh, massive efforts of Sufis in Iran and international organization to preserve human rights, we have provided evidence to the international community to the contrary. Um, and uh, the stalemate continues. He's still under house arrest, his life in danger, uh, and uh, 
this brief history shows the role of the uh, Basijis judiciary and uh, the uh, intelligence service of the uh, Revolutionary Guard and this propaganda machine working in concert and, uh, uh, and uh, harmony with each other to oppress uh, not just Konobadi Sufis, everybody. The same accusations are levied against Baha'is, um, Jews, uh, the Kurdish people, the regular murder of the uh, Kurdish laborers, the oppression of uh, Arab Iranians. Uh, I mean, uh, these are facts of life that we're dealing with. Uh, thank you. That was Hamid Garaguzlu. Next, we'll hear from Simin Kargar, a researcher on human rights and technology. She is an affiliate of the Perkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, where she focuses on hate speech online and the interplay of social media and power. You can follow her on Twitter at SiminK underscore. That's S-I-M-I-N-K underscore. When I was invited to be on this panel, I, I thought a lot about what disinformation in general has meant to me growing up as a child in Iran and then later on as an adult and then becoming a human rights advocate um, and finally um, as someone who specializes in, in the rights of um, ethnic groups and religious minorities. And um, I actually um, had fun thinking about the peculiarity of this information and the narratives that um, the state had um, managed to instill in our daily lives in, in, in very bizarre ways. Um, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge, at least for me, that I have also been the consumer of the disinformation in my own homeland, in my own country growing up. And so I have a couple of anecdotes to open with just just to lighten up a little bit also the, the environment on such a difficult topic. I remember that, and I think people probably in my generation remember, that in Tehran at least, um, when you would you know, go to restaurants, uh, if, if, if the restaurants were owned by religious minorities, they had to have a tag, like exactly where the window is to, to show open or close, to, to put a tag that said, religious minorities. For me, it meant good pizza and it meant really great sandwiches because they were usually run by Armenians. <laughs> and I, I really preferred pizza and sandwiches to any other restaurant. And for me, it meant quality food. It meant, it meant a great occasion to go with my family um, and have really good food that I, I always wanted. Um, it was only years later that I realized this was um, a very horrifying way to discriminate against small business owners. Um, and um, it was only years later that I realized there are people who wouldn't walk into these places because they are considered dirty and, and najas according to Islam. And um, I say this with a smile because I actually find it interesting how the peculiar the world that the state tries to create actually has you know, these unintended consequences that are actually positive. <laughs> but at the same time, I want to mention that we shouldn't really undermine the impact of this information, even if we are talking about a country where people are quite aware, I would say, of, of the level of lies that they are receiving on a daily basis from the state. Another anecdote uh, in that same regard is that um, I, I grew up with my mother and father being human rights advocates, lawyers, journalists. And um, I would say on a weekly basis for many years, um, newspapers like Kehan, like um, 
you know, the IRIB, the state TV would, would basically make programming about them and, and call them, you name it. I mean, anything from infidel to we had houses, um, right, for doing corrupt things and all of that. And, and a part of me secretly believed that maybe my parents are infidels. And, um, and at school, I, would, I had learned Quranic verses because that's what we were learning. And um, at nights, I would secretly pray for them so that they don't go to hell. I would never tell them that because I didn't want to break their hearts. And, and I, I think when we think about disinformation and the impact of it, I think we really should think about children, first of all, not adults. Um, and uh, we shouldn't undermine the impact of it. So with this in mind, um, my, my talk today is focused on the, on the Baha'i community, uh, on the Baha'is of Iran. And, um, and uh, I would like to emphasize that um, as a person who is not a Baha'i and, and, a, and a friend of the Baha'is and has had the pleasure of working with the Baha'is, and as someone who has gone through layers of discrimination as, as a person who belonged to a secular Shia family, I will never be able to um, say that I can even remotely understand um, what the, the minorities of Iran, the ethnic groups and the religious minorities, and in particular the Baha'is, have gone through. It is true we're talking about a country that, that disrespects and violates the rights of its citizens, regardless of, of, of um, whether they're majority or minority. But I think from my past fi the past five years of working on these issues, I say with all the humility, no matter how much we have experienced imprisonment and um, injustice, um, it's, it's, for me, it's not even remotely close to what an ordinary Baha'i girl or boy today um, experiences in Iran, or a Kurdish person, or a Gunabadi Darvish. So um, I just want to say that, that I have only tried to understand. I can't say that I have lived it. Um, the Baha'is in Iran, they constitute the largest non-Muslim religious minority, and um, they're severely and, and systematically discriminated. Um, uh, in the country, in general, the, um, religious minorities um, don't have unconditional constitutional rights. There are some rights reserved for them, but it's not un unconditional. Um, and the Iranian government even does not respect its own limited rights that it has regarded for its minorities. The Baha'is in particular, they are deprived from basic human rights, including access to employment and to higher education. Um, when they have even the smallest family-owned stores, they're often closed, shut down. They are heavily persecuted. Um, they, uh, uh, their property is confiscated and, and so on. So you can imagine essentially a daily life that wouldn't go on without intersecting with, with these deprivations of rights. And I have to also mention that the discriminations against the Baha'is dates prior to the Islamic Republic. However, it has become essentially much more um, expansive and systematic after the Islamic Republic. And, and in, in some ways even sponsored, you, can, you could call it, by the state. In terms of the specific hate campaigns and disinformation on, online, you, you can say that there's essentially an immediate campaign of defam defamation and hate speech against um, the Baha'is uh, going on in the country. And, and it does have reflection outside the, the cyberspace. It has at times led to murder, for instance, or you know, humiliation and so on. 
I w there are essentially four ways that, um, or three ways that um, you can categorize um, in terms of the ways that the Baha'is are being humiliated, um, attacked online by way of this disinformation. One is the economic boycotting or, or the economic apartheid, essentially, which basically means that, you know, um, there are different content um, lists going on of different Baha'i businesses, Baha'i-owned businesses that, uh, you know, combined with fatwas from religious um, religious figures, uh, Islamic religious figures, you know, asking people, basically telling people that these are not legitimate, these are najest, these are dirty, and they should be closed or they should be banned. You shouldn't go there. You shouldn't buy your whatever item it is you're buying from them. Another one is is a dehumanization. It's demonizing the the community. It's it's um, humiliating them and 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 um, uh, accusing them of things like incest, like using incest as a way to promote the the faith, to recruit, um, and, and and things of this nature. And another one, which I would say is actually quite widespread for all the minorities um, and anybody who is at odds with the government is, is, is this positioning you and your community against uh, national security, against the national interest, associating you as, uh, with, 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 you know, as an agent of the Zionist, you know, Zionist agent of Israel or the United States or the British or even, even Russia. Usually these kinds of uh, accusations, um, go into very um, specific details and, and not factually oriented, but that appear as factually oriented historic narratives um, that it would be probably difficult for an ordinary person to, to be able to distinguish these facts. Um, if you really don't deeply know the history, when once they go into the history, this is especially true with the with the Baha'i faith. It becomes very difficult to to really tell the facts from you know the fiction, and so they really use use this technique. And and just give you a couple of examples. I told you about the list, like you know, just a couple of years ago, um, in Qatar news agency, uh, a list was published uh, in Zahedan Sistan Baluchistan of Baha'i-owned. Um, uh, businesses and uh, there was also a fatwa, a few fatwas, um, and basically encouraging people not to go to these places. This particular publication has a, about two million viewers a month. Another another one is Farce News Agency that has had um, you know repeatedly um, content against the Baha'is. I just I don't even have to go into the article. I just read you the title of one. Why is incest permitted in, in Baha'ism? I also have to say that Baha'ism is used as a way to kind of humiliate the, the faith. It's the Baha'i faith. And the way they usually call it Baha'ism is, is to make it sound like a sect. Um, so they use the word Baha'ism a lot. And this particular farce news has 7.5 million viewers per month. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it essentially goes on. There is even, um, there are even content saying, like, why is it permissible to steal from the Baha'is as, as non-Muslims? Uh, and, um, there's also something like the YouTube version of Iran, the state-sponsored apparat. It has 23 million users per month. And there is so much content, uh, which especially focuses on this national, nationalism, nationalistic sentiments of Iranians, and, and they, they have lots of content there against the Baha'is um, uh, that, you know, they just keep putting on and off, highlighting things like they're associating them with colonization or, or the uh, Russians, all the, you know, 
dating back to the Qajar dynasty and things like this. Um, and then we also have this very peculiar, um, I would say like a newer trend, at least for me, is, is this seemingly secular, non-states um, looking, even sometimes from claiming to be from a religious minority group, individuals who come and, 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 and have these like, you know, ongoing YouTube kind of, um, videos discussing, uh, the faith and, and attacking it and, and calling it many names and, and really trying to get into the psychology of, um, of those who are very nationalistic in an extreme way, Iranian nationalists, um, and, and sort of positioning all the religious uh, minorities and ethnic groups, but in particular the, the Baha'i faith, as the biggest threat to this sense of national, national sentiment. And I have to tell you, it's when you watch it, it's, it's really an odd display of, 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 of hate speech and disinformation. I think, I think that um, in the past few years, with the efforts that the human rights community, the civil society has done, and, and, and the Baha'i community themselves, I think we see more awareness about uh, this level of disinformation. Um, I think that the Iranian civil society is by far more aware of, of what is happening to the Baha'i community, are more willing to discuss and, and, and talk about it, um, essentially uh, speak um, about the Baha'i, so it's not anymore as much only Baha'is talking about the Baha'i. So I consider that progress. I also think that in this specific case of the Baha'is, there is a lesson to learn, and that is, especially in a situation where we as Iranians are in a, such a polarized environment that we attack each other left and right, and then there are many state-sponsored which seeming can explain better its rollings and things going on, triggering this uh, polarization. We fall into this narrative and we try to defend ourselves and we try to attack each other. And I think the, the Baha'i community for me is exemplary in that they have tried to stay away from this trap and instead have tried to raise factual awareness about their faith, about their community humanizing it um, and, and not in response. It's not a, a reaction to an action. It's, it's, it's independent of that. It's, it's introducing themselves to the world. It's, it's, it's showing themselves as a community, as humans, as, as, um, as groups of people. And also at the same time, documentation. I think this is very important. I think the Baha'i community has done an amazing job, which is truly exemplary and, and a lesson learned for the Iranian human rights community in general, not just the minority groups, that um, the importance of quietly documenting and objecti objectively documenting with uh, attention to in international standards of, of human rights violations documentations, disinformation included. And so there is a wealth of um, you know, sources, official websites, um, reliable um, data and statistics that has been gathered and, and um, uh, com compiled by them, which I think for me is is what I take away when I try to think about the, the situation of human rights in Iran at large. That was Simin Kargar. Next, we'll hear from Azadeh Porzand, an independent human rights researcher and executive director of the Siamak Porzand Foundation, which is dedicated to promoting freedom of expression. It's a pleasure to be here to speak about Iran's disinformation and religious minorities. As my colleagues explain in great detail, religious minorities have been a target of disinformation and hate speech through both social and traditional media. This behavior has 
evolved and expanded throughout the recent years of digital transformation. The advance of digital technology and communication uniquely enables the high-speed spread of disinformation, rapid amplification of misleading content, and massive manipulation. Disinformation and incitement to hatred are increasingly applied as a form of information control to curb free speech, silent dissent, and influence public opinion in online public spheres. It's a matter of exerting power with the intention of disseminating false information about an individual, a group, or categories of people. In recent years, Iran, along with many other states, has weaponized hate speech and disinformation against segments of its own population in an effort to dominate online and offline discourses about sociopolitical issues. Disinformation operations have a variety of targets, including religious minorities. These targets are frequently subject to intimidation and castigation online, along with campaigns of violence, arrest, and even murder and execution offline. As Azadeh mentioned, this also includes economic repression of religious minorities as a result of the state's disinformation about these populations. An unfortunate example is the extensive campaigns in the Iranian media against Baha'is that feed a pattern of intimidation and threats against Baha'i-owned businesses in local communities and even their closure by authorities. The consequences of technology-enabled disinformation can thus vary drastically. Additionally, these malicious attacks are often exercised in tandem with other forms of suppression. This includes state-sponsored hacking of emails or other digital communications, electronic surveillance, and distributed denial of its service or DDoS attacks on opposition and minorities' websites. As a result of constant experiences with disinformation and coordinated harassment, targets tend to take more precautionary measures with information and physical security, both online and offline. Some of the individuals I interviewed throughout my research elaborated that as a result of these circumstances, they were more wary about what they chose to publicly speak or write about. And let's not forget, these attacks occur while access to information is intentionally being limited by the state through internet filtering, censorship of the press, and its monopoly over public television. So we are facing a situation that on one hand, accurate information about religious minorities is scanned and access to that information limited. While on the other hand, technology-enabled platforms are being gamed or misused to disseminate falsehoods. In other words, these malicious attacks are facilitated by the same mediums that are designed to give voice to the voiceless. To complicate the situation even further, the source of these attacks is concealed. Closed groups on Telegram and encrypted messages via Facebook and Instagram are popular mediums for organizing disinformation campaigns or coordinated hate speech. But the ability of social media platforms, journalists, and researchers to track the flow of that information is low, given the privacy settings of these um, options. This is an area that platforms can work more closely with researchers to develop a better understanding of what is going on as this information goes underground and how to tackle the issue. Social media platforms have introduced policies, community standards, and systems to weed out this information, harassment, and abuse. 
However, it is increasingly complicated to detect state-sponsored, state-executed, state-affiliated, or state-encouraged disinformation and incitement to hatred. Adversaries evolve and improve their tactics today, while platforms target and occasionally take down the disinformation of yesterday. Ongoing community involvement can improve methods of detection of emerging threats in real time. Negligence or insufficient action from social media companies about present threats contributes to the spread of disinformation. Many of those interviewed for my research said that when a smear campaign is unfolding, they have nowhere to turn to, and they don't trust that platforms would take action about their hardship. If they were so lucky to hear back, they did not find those responses effective or sufficient. This situation is often exacerbated when the language of abuse is not English, because then platforms run into the challenge of dealing with country-specific political, social, and cultural nuances, and they're clearly not well-equipped for contextualized content moderation. Some of this is an incentive problem. Due to, the, due to extensive sanctions imposed by the United States, financial transactions with Iran are prohibited in various areas, including advertising. Therefore, social media platforms do not see many opportunities for generating much revenue from the Iranian market. This may also go as far as turning a blind eye for fear of legal ramifications for servicing Iranian users. And therefore, they're not as incentivized to follow through cases of targeted disinformation campaigns, presumably because Iran as a country and many things related to it are marked as red legal flags with low priority to resolve. Ironically, Iranian influence operations that target foreign audiences, such as those in the U.S., have suddenly become a high priority for the same platforms as a result of public pressure and threats from the Congress. There are, however, encouraging steps taken by the major platforms to curb harmful speech and disinformation. I'm going to focus on three examples from YouTube, but obviously there are examples from other platforms as well. YouTube's um, trusted flagger program now has a Baha'i representative to notify the platform about content that violence their um, their uh, community guidelines. Additionally, YouTube has introduced policies that prohibit videos alleging that a group is superior in order to justify discrimination, segregation, or exclusion based on qualities like religion, gender, race, age, caste, sexual orientation, or veteran status. This is an effort toward limiting the spread of disinformation about minorities, as well as well-documented historical events such as the Holocaust. YouTube has also tweaked their content recommendation systems to disincentivize or downrank content that contains disinformation, conspiracy theories, or hate speech. And it is supposed to be supported by human reviews for further filtering. Although well-intentioned, this self-regulation does not go far enough. Companies cannot rely on algorithms alone, but will instead need to invest in new models of social verification too. This starts with people rather than technology. Policy responses and educational tools are required for strengthening resistance and building resilience against disinformation. A democratic and human rights-oriented response to state-sponsored 
information warfare must be rooted in democratic principles of transparency, accountability, and integrity. These principles should guide government policy in the battle against disinformation. So far, the EU has introduced an action plan against disinformation and pushed to work with major social media companies, although in a voluntary capacity. Google, Facebook, Twitter, Mozilla, and Microsoft have signed on to an EU's voluntary code of practice, which tries to set some standard for fighting disinformation. EU's top priorities, such as the recent European elections, have informed most of these measures. But codes of practice and platform responses must go beyond European politics and embrace the integrity and human rights of all, including religious minorities. For example, the EU should require further cooperation between platform signatories to the code of practice and fact-checkers in EU member states to debunk Iranian disinformation against dual citizens of EU member states and Iran. The United States has also dedicated resources to fact-checking, civ civic engagement, and democratic discourse, discourse both at home and abroad, including in Iran. The Global Engagement Center, or GEC for short, has been created to lead and coordinate the USG efforts to recognize, understand, expose, and counter foreign state and foreign non-state propaganda and disinformation, including by Iran. To maintain the integrity of these efforts, extensive oversight measures must be in place to hold all stakeholders involved accountable to the utmost and to avoid unfortunate situations like the recent GEC-funded Iran Disinfo project where disinformation was responded to with distorted information. However, much of these efforts aim at disinformation that undermines or influences policies, security, or stability of the United States and its allies and partner nations, and does not and not necessarily human rights and domestic targets of Iranian disinformation campaigns. As Iranian disinformation campaign becomes more sophisticated, the U.S. investments must match the severity and scope of the problem. It's not an either-or situation where putting more emphasis on one refutes the need for the other. These objectives must be incorporated in GEC programming with input from, from experts on both sides. This can be done through appropriating more funds to build capacity of civil society, independent media, and academic researchers. That is how any such interagency can direct and coordinate policy, establish a baseline for response, um, and educate civil servants, and create um, and sustain appropriate communication channels among stakeholders. And let me just wrap up by saying that there is no silver bullet for addressing the disinformation challenge. Governmental policy on its own will not be enough, nor should its efforts solely focus on disinformation targeting Western elections. The history of Iran's disinformation demonstrate that the tactics and techniques used against religious minorities and dissidents today will be used against everyone tomorrow. Tech companies, social media platforms, and civil society groups, including independent media, must be part of the solution. This means a whole-of-society approach, including Iranians themselves, is key to defending human rights and our democracy. This has been Near East Policycast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance this week from Corey Francis. 
For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org, follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute, and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Near East PolicyCast. Cast.